Hello, and welcome to 10 Blocks, the City Journal podcast. I'm your host today, Howard Husick, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor to City Journal. I'm joined today by one of America's most original and courageous writers and scholars, Shelby Steele of the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, and by Eli Steele, who heads the documentary film production firm, Man of Steel Productions. They're the co-producers of the new film, What Killed Michael Brown? a film that all Americans interested in gaining a clearer understanding of our racial dilemmas should see, but which Amazon Prime has decided you shouldn't see. We'll talk about the film and Amazon's decision with Shelby and Eli Steele. Shelby Steele came of age in Chicago. He's the author of five books, including How America's Past Sins Have Polarized Our Country, main title, Shame. Two documentary films previously, he's won the National Book Critics Circle Award Emmy Award and the Writers Guild Award for his 1991 frontline documentary, Seven Days in Bensonhurst. Eli Steele has produced and directed three films, What's Bugging Seth, Unlucky Lucky, and now What Killed Michael Brown. What Killed Michael Brown is a tour de force that uses the fact of teenager Michael Brown's death as a result of a confrontation with a Ferguson, Missouri police officer as the point of departure for a great deal, including the facts of that case, which garnered national and international attention, and how it intersects with the effects of progressive politics, the black community, and how it contrasts with Shelby Steele's own life as a black American, and with those of other blacks in the film that he might characterize as being committed to recovering their own personal agency. Welcome, Shelby and Eli. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. Shelby, let me start with the news that you've made with this film. Amazon Prime, I guess we can't say they've banned your film because it has other outlets, but they've refused to distribute the film. How do you understand that decision? What do you think was going on? Well, I think, it, uh, it, it, I think clearly um, the film challenged a... It, it, it's also important to note that at the same time that, that I was canceled, they contributed $10 million to Black Lives Matter. Amazon did, and then they canceled me. So it's hard not to conclude <laughs> um, that they're protecting, I think, a view of race in America, of, of systemic racism and black victimization. They're protecting it uh, as opposed to a, a more individualistic view of race in America, how, we, how we're doing is as people, human beings. Um, so I, th I think it was, uh, it fits all the kind of things that I've written about, white guilt. Uh, I see it as a sort of um, uh, white guilt venture. I'm, we're going to prove our innocence of racism by supporting groups like Black Lives Matter uh, and by denouncing groups uh, like Steele's. And uh, we're, uh, this is how we gain our legitimacy and credibility in American life. And uh, so that's what we're, we're, we're on one side, not, not both sides. So you have no idea that, no doubt that this was related to the content of the film. Um, we go through the whole process. That was the one that was going through the process. It was probably the most, um, Unusual for the process, like you get more customer service when you order toilet paper from Amazon. 
I got nasty. I mean, I sent emails. I was trying to figure out what the issue was. And once I realized that the technical aspects of the film were fine, it has to be the content. Right. Because there were four criteria in order to go into content review. We didn't meet any of the four criteria, so it has to be stumpy out. I didn't see any sex in the film, for instance. No nudity. Nothing. I mean, there's nothing in the film. If, if you look in the other Ferguson film, they're on the platform. We used a lot of this theme third-party footage, and then we used our own interviews. Just like those films do, they just have a different, uh, a different voice behind those films that we do. So the voice behind our, our content is different, and maybe that's what they have a problem with. I think so. Let, let me now go back to the film itself. Shelby, why return to the Michael Brown incident five years later? Well, uh, because in many, in many ways, uh, the incident, black teenager killed by a white cop, has, has become almost an archetype in America. And it, see, it seemed to me that, that the Michael Brown case sort of had all of the dimensions of this story and of Amer race relations in America today inherent in it, if we, could, if we could uncover it. You talk about kind of how fatigued you were when the news of the Michael Brown incident broke, that you said, oh no, not all this again. All sorts of things are going to happen. I'm going to be dragged into this in certain ways that I'm uncomfortable with. And yet, you and your son made an almost two-hour film that's based in the Michael Brown incident. Why did you do that? Because I sensed that in America at that time, eight, nine, ten years ago, six years ago for the Michael Brown case, I sensed that the, the problem that black America had since the 60s had come to rely on our victimization, our history of victimization as our source of power in American life. That we felt that by America's own admission, uh, racism had prevailed for centuries. We were victims of it. And in that sense, we had a moral authority over America. We could say to America, you must do this, you must do that, you must give us this. We are entitled because of that history. And so our, this, this, this narrow focus on victimization uh, as our power, not our, we didn't invent the computer or something, else. We, we, but we were victims. And you know we were, and you've admitted your, your role in it, and so now America owes us. And that source of power, is, it seemed to me, what made the Michael Brown case explosive. Because here was an instance of a young man who was shot and killed by a white cop. So obviously the temptation was to say, well, there it is. That's our chance. That's our opportunity. This poor kid is, is victimized by a, a, a racist, no doubt racist white, white cop. That duplicates American history. That proves the, our point, our argument, that America is still systemically racist and that we are victims and that we therefore are entitled. So in the moment then, 
when that news breaks, you're anticipating how this is going to be deployed and you're upset about it, aren't you? I'm feeling that I've already seen this play, that it's utterly predictable. Uh, and yet I'm convinced that America's gonna march through it and, and we're gonna do the whole thing. We're gonna have the riots. We're gonna have the national television coverage. We're gonna have uh, certain personalities that are going to emerge. It's gonna be a big drama because all of America, even beyond America, are looking, same with George Floyd uh, much more recently, are looking at this one and they're asking this question, is victimization of black people still alive? Is it still a, a profound force? Does it still shame us? Does it rob us of moral authority? Most whites feel that it does. Most whites feel that, okay, blacks are still subjected to the, this kind of uh, victimization. And, there, and again, therefore, their, their entitlement expands. And that's how you get full American corporate world, dumping millions of dollars into in, demonstrators and so forth, canceling Shelby Steele at, at Amazon, because they're trying to prove that they're not racist, that they're innocent of racism. And that is their power, that is white power and white legitimacy. And they were quite willing to pay for it. Um, uh, war on poverty, great society, school busing, public housing, expanded welfare payments, so forth. They're quite willing to pay trillions of dollars to win back that innocence that they lost by confessing uh, to, to racism in the, in the past. It's like, we have to pay that, we have to pay history's bill. Uh, or we're not, or we are a part of that ugly history. We are, we are racist. So we can't be, we, we now have to prove ourselves uh, to be innocent of, of, of racism. And we as blacks are, that's, that's our meat and potatoes. That's our, and, and so they, the flood into, into uh, Ferguson uh, was, to, was to reinforce that victimization as a source of power. And interestingly, the film does go through the findings of the Justice Department, which clearly exonerated the police officer and even the Attorney General of the United States, then Eric Holder, who was certainly up on his high horse about the incident. No indictments were brought and he didn't say there should have been. But the film is only partly about the true facts, if you will, of the case. You then pivot, don't you? into something quite a bit broader. Tell me, tell me about where the film takes it. Well, the film takes it, one of the places where we, we do that pivot had a little bit to do with you. We move into the whole, the, what we thought of as we were working on it, the Pruitt-Igoe section. And, and here we sort of see white guilt expanded and, and taking on this, this colossal form, this shape, and that's a giant public housing project. That's a giant public uh, housing uh, project in, in St. Louis, but duplicated all across the country in, in other cities as well, public housing. And, and what was fascinating was that in those, in those housing projects was the, there was no, it was, this wasn't the idea, but this was the result, was that they took away from blacks 
blacks who were, as you pointed out in the film, uh, doing okay in their rather ragged neighborhoods. They were coming up from the South. Uh, the families were pretty much intact. They were extremely poor, uh, but they were, they saw low rent as an opportunity and they were, they were going to move up in American life and so forth. Then came this whole new ideology of liberalism in the 60s, which is again based on the sort of white guilt, black victim uh, structure. As you talk about, there was a photograph taken of, of, of them and so we see them in, the, in this impoverished situation and we say we're going to wipe out that by building these massive uh, apartment buildings and we're going to put all these people in there. And of course, what we do is take away from the people themselves agency over their own fate, over their own life. Um, my parents, I grew up in pretty much in that kind of a neighborhood where everybody was, was striving upward and so forth. Uh, my father was extremely suspicious of public housing, wanted nothing to do with it, um, and, and so forth. But many Blacks were seduced into it. And so you're seeing Michael Brown, who went through, as you point out in the film, four different high schools, was a troubled person, apparently, although we don't get to know him well as an individual, as you also point out in the film. You see him as kind of a culmination or his neighborhood, neighborhoods like it as a culmination of this misplaced benevolence of liberal progressivism. Am I putting words in your mouth? No, that's, that's right. They, liberalism built a new society for blacks, a different kind of society with different rules. Uh, they, again, there was, you know, the man can't live in the, in the, in the house. He has to be, can't be a part of the family. And, and, so they erected a whole different set of, and, and you should believe in the government as your savior. It's probably the worst idea that came out of this liberalism. The pub, our, our public, our giving you public housing is, is a precursor. We're gonna give you a new life after centuries of oppressing, oppressing you. We're gonna, you're, you're do something and we're gonna, we're gonna give it to you and that's gonna be your deliverance into modernity, into the modern world. And so you should have faith in us, not in yourself. We're gonna do it. And so you're, you're and, and this was duplicated in its, its form all across America. Uh, very soon we began to create a black underclass for the first time. Uh, in, in the neighborhood I was growing up in, everybody had a father in these, public housing situations, nobody, or very few people had fathers. Uh, you destroy the, 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 the family. Uh, well, liberalism became in its blind hunger to win back moral authority for white America, to remove that stain of, of white America. They once again exploited black America. Yeah, you're turning it on, on its head so much, right, that what was cast as help for Blacks was help for Whites. Yes, it was, it was entirely, uh, again, my feeling is that most of social reform since the 60s is driven by, not by Black development or underdevelopment, but by white guilt. Whites have, have lo lost their moral confidence in the 60s. 
when they had to when we passed civil rights bill and so forth, we had to confess to 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 this this horrible racism that we had, in, had indulged in. And I don't I don't think whites have recovered their moral confidence since. I think they've been preoccupied with it. It has driven social reform uh, in America more than anything else. Transformed our universities, our educational system. Uh, now even affecting the corporate world. Um, and it, but it comes from that. You, you can't do what America did for four centuries, finally then bravely, honorably confess it without there being, without you putting a weapon in somebody else, in, in, in the hands of those people that you victimized. And the, the tragedy is those people then to believe their victimization is their power rather than their abilities, their, their, their principles, their hard work, uh, so forth. Uh, to this day, we, we are still in black America fighting just for this, this, for victimization to be our power. And people just keep playing the same role over and over again. And that's what you saw right in that moment. Eli, let me ask you as a, as a filmmaker, as, as the producer director, I'm struck by the fact of the range of interviewees, including the Reverend Al Sharpton. And I wonder, I'm just imagining the challenge of getting access to Reverend Al Sharpton and how you approach that task. Could you, could you share that with us? Um, I, I give a lot of, I give a lot of um, credit to Al Sharpton. Um, he answered the email right away. He's not afraid of talking. He believes it, but he really believed in um, I can't say this thing for some other people, but Al Sharpton, he really believes in what he's doing. And uh, he presented a compelling case. I mean, even if we disagree with you, I think it's better for you to hear the argument because um, it's, it's, a valid, it's a valid point. And we make our own argument and then the audience can to shy. Right, and Sharp, Sharpton was not shy. He said, protest works. We have to keep protesting. And you, and you contrasted that. What struck me though, Shelby, was the different sorts of black voices that come to take over the film in its last third, let's say. And I would characterize these as voices that were pointing black culture in a quite different direction. It was almost as if they were just sick of all of this dependency and you end up featuring them a, a great deal. Tell me about how you experience those encounters and whether it gives you hope. Well, it definitely gives us hope. Uh, those people were, they were just amazing. Um, and it was, they did all of our work for us uh, at, toward the end of the film. T tell us who they are just real quickly. Well, there, there are a bunch of people. One was, was a woman called Miss Queen who actually during the riots in Ferguson would go out in the, and, and she was a, she's a very motherly nurturing type. She would go out and actually feed the, uh, the young people who were there. Uh, but then she would, she would just, she would give of, of uh, uh, herself and her, um, her faith in God. And she would, she would try to, to talk sense to them. And, and remind them of what reality was. And that, that 
her main one of her main focuses was simply to to bring the the black family back together. Uh, so we we show a scene of her at the end visiting a black family with several children, and, and um, again tragically no father. But she starts down at that level, where where everything really begins uh, and works with those kids and and builds a sense of neighborhood. Um, we have, we have fascinating character uh, Barney Boker, who was uh, in Chicago and the Woodlawn area, who was a, had been a drug dealer and uh, at uh, 15, 16 years of age was making thousands. Of Not just a small time drug dealer. He was a big time uh, drug drug dealer, but because he was disciplined and he ran a big business and he in, he was an enforcer and he but he also knew how to build relations with the community uh, he this, this guy was amazing he set up car washes in the neighborhood and gave free car washes to people to be seen as a good guy a godfather and uh, the skill the genius of this man he also then was finally caught did 11 years uh, in prison came out looked as though he might go back to the streets, but ran into this other, the, the pastor, Corey Brooks, who we, we, uh, we interviewed and uh, be, transformed his life, gave up the, the, that, uh, that criminal world uh, and now applies those principles and works with young people and so forth uh, in, in a much more, in a healthy way and tries to turn them around. The, the, the main thing we, we loved about him and the, the group that we met there was their faith that social reform required personal transformation, personal evolution, personal development. It's not about your race or your identity. It's about who you are and how, how you develop yourself, how you give to others, how so forth. You create a sort of a positive, self-fulfilling sort of uh, arrangement with yourself. But you don't ask, you don't expect the world out there to deliver you and give you a, a great life. You have to make that life yourself. And it, it, uh, it harkens a little bit to W.B. Du Bois and, and others who, who had Malcolm X, who, who had a, a sharp focus on self-help. Yeah, he really did. That, that's, people think of him as, mainly as a confrontationalist and as anti-white, if you will. But he was profoundly into self-help, wasn't he? Oh, he was, he was into to the point of openly rejecting any offers of help from outside the black community. I mean, he, he said, you cannot expect it. It'll be all about them. Malcolm X is sort of my, one of my, my role models. I, I, I admired him, uh, the later Malcolm the one who moved beyond race uh, and who, who focused on these positive, this faith in self-help that, that was, I think, so important to him. It's always been a theme in black life, uh, but we've lost it. We began to really lose it in the 60s when white guilt began to define our world. And whites were, gonna, were giving us entitlements. And, and, uh, and so we, got, we, in a sense, got bought off. And, and we sold off. And you look at 
the, the politics of race today and it's still about what kind of program can we give them? What, you know, what, how can we take over their life here? How can we take over their life there? Rather than as uh, Well, my colleague Jason Riley has a title of his book, Please Stop Helping Us. Yeah, Frederick Douglass, leave us alone. Leave us alone and that the, lo the longer I live with that idea, the richer and more powerful and more meaningful it, com it comes to me. Uh, it, it, it is not a cold negative thing. It is an empowering thing. The, the way successful societies work is the guy, if you've known anybody who's, who is starting out in life and wants to build a career and their attitude usually is leave me alone. I want to go here. I want to go there. And, and I'm going to make a lot of mistakes, but I'm going to keep going. There's, there's no other way. And, and uh, so we tried to touch a little bit of that. Yeah, Nathan Glazer, who I admire, and I'm sure you know his work very well too, said, it's not really fair to ask blacks to advance as we've asked other ethnic groups to advance, but there's not really any alternative. He's absolutely right. It's, it, here's, here's my, I would add to that. The worst idea that Blacks have entertained since the 60s is the idea of justice. The idea that we're going to somehow get justice. The idea that we should pursue justice. Justice is, 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 in a, is something you can only get from other people. You, you're not, you, here's the biggest, one of the biggest challenges of Black life. You're never going to get justice. Not ever. It ain't gonna happen. The sooner you realize that, the sooner you accept that and be in, allow yourself to be informed by that, the happier you will be. Justice is the worst delusion to ever come into the black community. You can see why given our history, but it's a, it, is a, it ties us back, it pulls us backward, not forward. And that, that I, I think it would, Corey Brooks at the end of the, of, of the film is somebody who, not worrying about justice. He's worrying about getting those kids to read, to learn how to read and to write and to do well in school and to build a life and make a career and, and so forth. Corey Brooks, pastor in, in Chicago. Uh, you know, one of the things that really struck me as an unusual insight, I, I, I'll go on a tangent with a personal story for just a minute that will get to my question. Uh, I had a, a colleague once when I was a young newspaper writer who worked for a newspaper called the Boston Record American. The Record American was a tabloid. It really just existed to publish the late uh, uh, horse race numbers. That was their business model. But he was their crime reporter and he would have to call in if there was a shooting. And they would ask him, Dave, is it dark out there? And if he answered that, yes, it was really dark out there, that meant that one black man had shot another black man and it was not gonna be in the newspaper. And you talk about that at some great length in the film because of the hundreds of black deaths that don't seem to matter. T tell me about why that gets you so upset and why those murders you think are happening. Well, I think the problem with those murders, we don't stop, we don't look at them, we don't pay attention to them um, because the trigger finger 
the, the, the finger that pulls the trigger that kills the other teenager, whatever, is black. If the trigger finger were white, we'd be in Michael Brown territory. The whole world would descend because it would become an opportunity, black victimization, power, an opportunity for power. These kids who get shot in, on the south side of Chicago in the thousands every year, there's no, nothing, there's no power, nothing to it. They don't, uh, I can't turn that to power because the, it's black on black crime. Uh, there's no echo of history of, of uh, injustice. Uh, and so I, I can't squeeze out of white guilt any power. And, and you say in the film, and this struck me, that they don't value not only the other guy's life, they don't value their own life. No, they don't. They don't, because it, it's, not in any, it's not in any reference to anything. I value my life because my father loved me. He loved me. You know, my mother loved me. They punished me when I did things wrong. They rewarded me when I did things well. They, they taught me about the world. They were good. I'm not, I'm not going to, that kind of kid is not going to go out there and, and, and hang around and shoot people, shoot his buddies. These kids have no love. They have no, uh, no connection. That's the, the wonderful thing that Miss Queen does that we interviewed at the end of, that, at the, end of the film. She understands that it, it, you, it breaks you down when you, when you see her, that human beings respond to love. Look them, you look somebody in the eye and there's real affection, real concern, interest in their, in their life. They come to life. The fact that we have these desolate areas in every major city now, millions of blacks uh, living in a kind of nihilistic world is that we as an oppressed people have now begun to sell ourselves out, to, to put ourselves, to trade ourselves for the illusion. We don't get anything real, but the illusion that we're getting another public housing unit or something, and that's going to mean something. No, it, it is, it, we've, got a, we've got a deep sort of re, we've got to start down at the bottom you know, where, where Pastor Brooks does personal transformation. Um, we've got to love ourselves and we've got to love each other. And we've got to encourage uh, each other. And this is an area that goes beyond social science and, and so forth. Uh, we need some inspiring leadership. King was, one, was a wonderful example. Malcolm X was a wonderful example. Leadership that, that encourages us to transform ourselves to take responsibility for ourselves, to, you know, to develop our sense of agency. We make things, we make life happen. We've, that's, what, that's the kind of work now. That's what oppression takes out of the people. They don't believe in themselves. They believe in the oppressor. Now this is, this is real tough to hear, but they believe in the oppressor. They believe that's, he, that's, he calls the tune. They don't, that we, we have to learn to believe in ourselves. We are our only hope. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And we should seize it and run with it. Uh, encourage it in every way. But we have a little ways to go. There. <laughs>
I hope that only the blacks we interviewed come across in that context. Well, it was really interesting. What I got out of that is that just when we think that it's all about Black Lives Matter and it's all about those slogans and it's all about, you know, reparations, that something might be brewing at the grassroots that says enough of this dependency, enough of this politics, enough of protest. I just want to go and go to work and build something. That's what I got of got out of those interviews and maybe it'll just take us by surprise. I hope, I hope so. I, I think there's a, there's a, a crack is opening up in, in, in black America because since the sixties, there's been so much failure. All these, all these ideas. Well, if we just get that, there'll be, a, if we just get that, we'll, if, if uh, our schools don't have resources, and it, it, you know, if you've got chalk and a blackboard, you got enough resources. You can teach. <laughs> you can work with that, uh, but we don't, uh, and we make excuses and we say we're we're victims. And you know, the children we have to teach are. That's what's got to change. We have to we have to stop worrying about white America, whether they're racist or not. You know, the, it's against the law to be racist. That's what we need to know, and then and move forward. Uh, and and stop the just to be blunt about it, the excuse making that is is taking us down, keeps us down. Shelby, tell us where can people watch this film? You can watch this film right now at what killed michaelbrown.com and that's the best place but uh, also vimeo v-i-m-e-o vimeo uh you can also watch it from watch it there and uh, we're sort of in the process right now of, of uh looking for other platforms so hopefully soon there'll be two or three others that uh places that you can see it we want it as widely distributed as possible i do say maybe even amazon <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe maybe they'll get the message that they they uh, have not shown tolerance. Actually, you know, I know that there was a time when uh, you produced a an Emmy Award winning film for Frontline. I used to work for WGBH myself. They're the producers of Frontline. I could see this as a Frontline. Uh, I I don't know if something like that could happen, but uh, it, it's certainly of the same quality that was integral to your getting the awards that you received for the film about Bensonhurst. So uh, we'll see. Whatkilledmichaelbrown.com, go there, watch it. Watch it twice, I did. I got more out of it the second time. Eli Steele, Shelby Steele, Man of Steel Productions, what made, what killed Michael Brown? Not who killed him, although it answers that question. What killed him? That's the depths that the film explores. I'm Howard Houston for City Journal. Thank you so much, Shelby Steele and Eli Steele. Thank you, thanks for having us. I enjoyed it. And thanks for your contribution to the film. You were wonderful. You were very lucid. I have to say this, I, I, I felt honored to be in this film. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.